All right, well, we're there in Psalm 22, and like we've been talking about, we've been going through a series. We just started a series last week called Let Us Reason Together, and we are looking at some logical reasons for our faith. And uh, what we did last week, and of course it was Easter, we talked about reasoning the resurrection, and we looked at some logical reasons why you should believe in the resurrection. Now, we don't take away from the faith that is required uh, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but we looked at some logical things that you could look at, that anybody could look at and say, that makes sense that the resurrection actually happened, that the resurrection is real. What I'd like to do this morning is do the same thing for the Word of God. Now, you're there in Psalm 22. I'd like you to keep your place there uh, because we're going we're gonna to come back to it. Uh, so please make sure you put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there. But go with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And if you find the T books, they're all clustered together, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus in the New Testament, 1st Thessalonians chapter number 2. And I want to give you some logical reasons to believe in the Word of God. And when we talk about believing in the Word of God, what we are saying is this, believing that the Bible was not merely written by men, that it was not men who thought it up, it was not men who wrote down the thoughts. We know that men were used by God. The Bible says that holy men of God spake as they were uh, moved by the Holy Ghost. But it was God who spake through those men. Now, as believers, and I would assume that most people here this morning are believers. You have a testimony of salvation. You're a Christian. As believers, we accept the Bible not as a mere book, but as the Word of God. Let's look at one uh, example of that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, For this cause also... Thank we God without ceasing, because, notice what Paul said, he said, when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And by the way, today you'll have people who will say, well, when the apostles and when they wrote uh, uh, these, these, these epistles and these accounts, and we understand that they did write these epistles to actual people. Paul, at, for, in First Thessalonians here, was writing a letter to a church in Thessalon- uh, Thess- Thessalonica. Uh, of course, we saw last week how Luke wrote his account of the gospel according to Luke and Acts to a friend, and we understand that. But it's not that they did not understand that God was moving through them. People will say, well, they just wrote uh, these letters, and then uh, years and years later, people decided that they were Scripture. Well, this verse disproves that, because Paul is telling you, look, I understand that when we sent you the Word of God, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. So they understood that what they were writing was inspired. They understood that what they were writing was given to them by God. And as believers, we accept the Bible simply because it is the Bible. And I know that might be a little odd uh, to understand, and I'll explain it here in a second. Go, you're there in First Thessalonians. Go to Titus, if you wouldn't mind. A, a, if you just go past Second Thessalonians, past First, Second Timothy, and Titus. While you go there, let me read to you from John. And here's what I'm telling you. As saved people, and if you're not saved this morning, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're not, uh, you, you haven't put your faith in Christ, or maybe you are wondering or thinking about whether you should or shouldn't put your faith in Christ, what I'm about to say does not apply to you. What I'm about to say only applies to those of us that are saved. But if you're saved, the Bible says that you've got the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. 
And that Holy Spirit affirms when it hears the word of God that it is in truth not the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Let me give you some examples of that. John chapter 10 and verse 26 says this. This is what Jesus said. He said, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep, this is what Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In verse 5, he would go on to say this, and a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. See, the Bible says that those who are followers of Christ, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, as a believer, it is enough to simply read the word of God, and the Holy Spirit of God inside of you tells you, yes, that is true. Yes, that is the word of God. Let me give you another example. Luke chapter 24, you don't have to turn there. In verse 32, we have the apostles on the road, a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. The Bible says this, and they said one to another. This is after Jesus had appeared to him to them after his resurrection, and he had uh, taught them about himself. This is what they said. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he, referring to Jesus, talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. So as New Testament Christians, we have a testimony that when someone opens up the Bible and reads it and teaches it to us and preaches it to us, the Holy Spirit inside of us uh, uh, will witness and confess to the fact our hearts will burn within us that this is in fact the Word of God, that these are the words of God. And look, a Christian doesn't open up the Book of Mormon and think to himself, this is the Word of God. A Christian doesn't open up the Quran and think to himself, this is a word, the Word of God. A Christian, a believer that has the Holy Spirit of God, though, will, they're not going to open up the Book of Enoch and think to themselves, this is the Word of God. But they will read the, the words in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Matthew and Mark and Luke and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and realize that this is, in fact, the Word of God. And there's only one reason for it is because the Holy Spirit of God tells you that these are not the words of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. However, with that said, and I want to make that clear, and I want to make sure you understand that as a Christian, I believe that Jesus was right when he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they shall follow me. With that said, though, what we talked about last week was this, that God gave an invitation for those who are not saved to reason with him. And I won't make you go back to that passage in Isaiah, but he said, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And the context was within the reasoning of your sins being forgiven, your uh, sins being washed away. And he talks about the fact that you can't be saved. So here's what I believe. I believe that we should be able to. And though our faith is enough proof for those of us who have faith, we should be able to look at those who have no faith and be able to reason with them and logic with them. Our beliefs will stand up to logical reasonings. This is what God said. He said, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And not only that, I believe that as New Testament Christians, we ought to be able to teach others and reason with others and convince others of the truth of God's word. Are you there in Titus chapter 1? Look at verse 9. Let me give you an example. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, the Bible says this, holding fast the faithful word. That's referring to the word of God. He said, holding fast the faithful word. Notice, as he hath been taught. Why would you hold fast to the faithful word? Notice that he may be able by, don't miss this, 
that he may be able by sound doctrine both to... Notice, he says, look, you should be able, as a Christian, to open up your Word of God and use sound doctrine, sound teaching, to both to, notice, exhort. The word exhort means to encourage or to urge strongly and to convince. The word convince means to cause someone to believe Notice, we should be able to buy, we should be able to hold fast the faithful word as he had been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainslayer, the gainsayer. Notice, and the word gainsayer there is referring to one who contradicts, one who denies what is elect. And today there are many gainsayers. There are many people who will deny the resurrection of Christ. They will deny that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. They will deny the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. But the Bible tells us that we should be able to take the Bible and take sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound reasoning, and be able to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. We should be able to strongly encourage and urge and to convince someone that is a denier or that is unsure, or that does not know whether the Bible is what it claims to be. Now, you're there in Titus. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. What I'm going to do in this sermon is I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to answer the question, how do we know that the Bible was not written by man? How can we be assured of the fact that the Bible is not just a cunningly devised fable written by individuals in order to uh, conspire against us, to get us to submit to their religion and give them money and things like that? You know, how do we know that the Bible that we hold is in fact the Word of God and not the Word of man? And what I'm going to use is some logical arguments that even an unbeliever, and especially, because look, I'm not trying to convince a Christian that the Bible is the Word of God. You can't be a Christian without believing that the Bible is the Word of God. I'm not trying to convince you that are saved that the Bible is the Word of God, but what I'm trying to do is give you some arguments that either you can use, or if you're here this morning and you say, I'm not sure if I believe that the Bible is the Word, some reasons to consider that this book is in fact divine, that it was given to us by God, that it is not simply the Word of God. Now, I'm going to give you two uh, uh, arguments in regards to why we believe that the Bible is not written by man. And what we mean by that is that it, the source is not man. Man was used in the same way that you use a pen to write a letter. Man was used to pen down God's Word, but the source did not come from man. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, you're there in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like you to look at verse 1. Last week... We were in 1 Corinthians 15, and we were dealing with the resurrection. If you remember, 1 Corinthians 15 highlights the fact that there were eyewitnesses who uh, testified to the resurrected Christ. But I'd like to notice something different that is also given in this chapter in order to give credibility to the resurrection and to our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. This is what Paul said. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. The gospel is the good news, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved. And by the way, you've got to believe the gospel in order to be saved. You say, why is it important that we, uh, that we, uh, uh, that, that we contest and that we uh, uh, defend 
the resurrection of Christ because you cannot be saved if you do not believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Now, he's going to explain to us what the gospel is. And here's what what it is. He says, how that there are three components to the gospel. Here's the first one. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. If you're going to be saved, if you have to receive the gospel, and the gospel, the message of the gospel, the, me- the good news, the good tidings, the message of salvation, is that Christ died for our sins. But I want you to notice what he says, according to the scriptures. He says, Christ died for our sins. And remember, we saw this last week, and I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon. If you didn't listen to it, I'd encourage you to catch it. But the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. The New Testament was written during the time that the people who saw Christ, who who witnessed His miracles, who saw Him uh, die, and those who saw Him in His resurrected state were all still alive. He talks about this in this chapter. But He gives as an example, as a, a validation, as a credibility to the message of the gospel that Christ, yes, did die. And he says, yes, you witnesses. In fact, that's what he's going to tell us in the next few verses. You witnesses, and he's going to tell us who the witnesses were and where they were and what they saw. But he says, here's another point to prove that our faith is true, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, according to prophecy, according to the fact that the Word of God had predicted that this would happen. Look at verse 4. And that, here's the second component to the gospel, he was buried. And that, here's the third component to the gospel, he rose again the third day. And notice again what he emphasizes, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. Now go back to Psalm 22 if you kept your place there. Psalm 22, and do me a favor and go ahead and find Matthew chapter 27. Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. We're going to go back and forth between those uh, for a little bit. So go to Psalm 22, which if you, 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 we were reading there, if you open up your Bible just right in the center, you'll more than likely find the book of Psalms. And then you have Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, should be fairly easy to find. You say, Pastor Jimenez, how do we know the Bible is not written by man? And here's the first, the first main argument. We know that the Bible is not written by man because the Bible fulfilled specific prophecy. We know that the Bible was not written by man because the Bible fulfilled specific prophecy that could not have been orchestrated by man. The Bible fulfilled, and I want you to understand, it's important to understand that it is specific prophecy. We're not talking about Nostradamus-type you know, generalities, all right? There are prophecies that are so generic I mean, this is what the faith healers do, isn't it true? I mean, even in a, tr- in a, in a, in a room this size with this many, there's a, a 192 people uh, here uh, this, this morning. I, I could get up and, and say, one of you has back pain. And, and, and say, God gave me, a, God gave me a, a word. Some of you are in debt. You know, some of you have a health problem. Some of you are having issues. Okay, those generalities we understand. That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the prophecies given in Scripture. The prophecies in, given in Scripture, in Scripture were specific prophecies that were fulfilled in, to, to the detail, and they could not have been orchestrated by man. Now, here's what I'm going to do. 
We could spend weeks studying the prophecies fulfilled in Scripture. Maybe one day we'll do that on a Sunday night, spend several weeks going through all of the fulfilled prophecy. We don't have time for that this morning, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you four examples of uh, fulfilled prophecies, and they're going to all come out of Psalm 22. We could go to a lot of places, Isaiah 53, Zechariah, Genesis. We go through all sorts of different Old Testament books. I'm just going to pick out one chapter, Psalm 22, and show you some specific prophecies fulfilled for the death of uh, and the crucifixion of Christ. And I want you to notice this. I'm only going to focus on the ones from Psalm 22 that could not have been in the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. There are some prophecies, for example, as to what Jesus would say from the cross. Now, someone could make the argument, well, well, Jesus must have known that that's what the Old Testament said, that the Messiah would have said from the cross, so he fulfilled that because he knew that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you prophecies that were fulfilled from people outside of Christ, people that he had no control over, specific prophecies that were fulfilled in regards to his crucifixion that he did not have control over their fulfillment. And let me just say this, and please understand this. Psalm 22 was written by a man named David. You probably know David from the story of David and Goliath. He was King David, of course, in the New Testament. And here's what you need to understand. The book of Psalms in Psalm 22 was written about a thousand years before Christ. So we're talking about a writing that happened a millennia before these events took place. And they are specific writings that were specifically fulfilled by Christ. And please understand this, and you can do this research if you'd like. No one argues the fact that David wrote the book of Psalms. No one argues the fact that the book of Psalms were written by David a thousand years before Christ. And you're welcome to research that if you'd like. Are you there in Psalm 22? Let me just give you one something. This is not one of the specific examples I want to give you, but I just want to show you the, what's interesting in this, in this chapter, Psalm 22. Notice how the chapter begins, verse 1. To the chief musician upon Ageleth, Shehar, a psalm of David. Notice how it begins. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, for some of you, that ought to already sound familiar. Psalm 22 begins with this phrase, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my Roaring. Now go ahead and keep your finger there. We're going to go back and forth for a little bit. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. That phrase in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me, should sound familiar to you if you're a Christian because of the fact that these are, this is a phrase that Jesus gave from the cross. There were seven different phrases that Jesus gave from the cross. And one of them was this phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Me. Are you there in Matthew 27? Look at verse 46. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus was being crucified. Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See, Jesus from the cross was quoting Psalm 22 when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, here's what you need to understand, and here's what's interesting. The chapter divisions and the verse divisions in our King James Bible 
were not put there by the men who wrote those books. For example, what I mean by that is that uh, uh, David did not start this prophecy with saying, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Those chapter divisions and those verse divisions were added uh, many years later, and I'm thankful for it. I'm glad that I'm able to say to you, go to Matthew chapter 27, go to Psalm 22, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter. I'm glad that we have those divisions so that we can find parts of Scripture. But these were not written that way. And in fact, they were not written that way at the time of Christ. So at the time of Christ, when they read the Bible, they would not have said, hey, Psalm 22 says this. In fact, what they would have done is they would have just quoted the first part of the Psalm in order for people to know what it is that they are quoting. What's interesting is that Jesus from the cross said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Here's another thing to consider. The book of Psalms is a book of songs. It was the hymn book for the nation of Israel. Just like you and I have a hymn book and we open it up to sing songs, the nation of Israel would sing songs from the book of Psalms. That's what the book of Psalms is. What's interesting about a song that you're familiar with is that once you know the words, you will fill in the words of the songs that you know. For example, if I said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, those of you who know the song would be able to finish it off. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. If I said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, those of you that know the song would say, who saved a wretch like me. If I said, and can it be that I should gain, those of you who know the song, you would fill in the song. What's interesting is that Jesus, as he died, as he's dying, begins to quote this song uh, from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, which being interpreted as, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I think he did that because those who are familiar with that psalm or that song would have began to think through that song and to realize that this psalm is a prediction and a prophecy of what was happening right then. Now keep your finger there in Matthew 27. Go back to Psalm 22. Look at verse 2. Oh my God. I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of man, and despised of the people. Now, I'd like you to notice the first. Here's the first specific prophecy that we see fulfilled in Psalm 22, that was not in control of Christ. Look at verse 7. And they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lip. They shoot out the lip. Notice these words. They shake the head, saying. Now, we're going to come back to what they said here in a minute. But I want you to notice that Psalm 22 and verse 7 told us that when this individual who was being put to death was being put to death, those who were putting him to death would shake the head at him. Now you're there in Psalm 22. Keep your place there. We're going to come right back to it. Go to Matthew 27. Look at verse 39. Why don't you notice that this was fulfilled? A specific prophecy fulfilled at the crucifixion of Christ that was not within the control of Christ. The Bible predicted the fact that Jesus would have people wag or shake their heads at, at him while he died. Matthew 27, verse 39. Notice what the Bible says. And they that passed by reviled. The word reviled there means to speak abusively, to uh, speak angrily at him. Um, Him, referring to Jesus, notice, wagging their heads, 
wagging their heads. Now, please understand this. Jesus had no control over what people were going to do while he was dying. But all I'm telling you is that in this psalm, Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Christ, David predicted that when the Messiah died, those who were putting him to death would shake the head at him. And then in Matthew 27 and verse 39, we are told that those who were putting him to death reviled him, wagging their heads. Go back to Psalm 22. Let me give you another example. Not only do we see that Jesus would have people wag or shake their heads while he died, you say, well, I don't know, that's not that uh, strong of an argument. Maybe that was a coincidence that that happened. Okay, well, look at Psalm 22, look at verse 8. Because remember, in verse 7, it says, saying. So we're about to hear what they were saying. What were they saying? They're wagging their heads, they're shaking their heads, and they're saying, notice what they're saying, verse 8. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. King David, a thousand years before Christ, prophesied that there would be a man who would be dying and people would shake the head. And while they were shaking the head, they would, these words would come out of their, mou- their mouths. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. So here's a question. Did that happen? We'll go back to Matthew 27. We read in verse 39 that they were wagging their heads. Matthew 27 And you know what? I missed a verse here, so let me go back there myself. Matthew 27, and look at verse number 40. In verse 39, it says that they passed by, reviled reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Notice verse 41. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him, what the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Verse 3, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now. And it's almost like these people are using Psalm 22 as a script to get their cues from. Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Christ, said they would wag their heads and they would say he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him. And then the Bible tells us in Matthew 27 that they, wagging their heads, were saying he trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now, and here's the point. That was not orchestrated by Christ. Christ had no control over what these people would do while he was dying. He did go ahead and hint towards it because he said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? But yet we we see that the people around him fulfilled two specific... And, and like I said, look, for sake of time, I, I could have spent... And I thought about just spending the entire sermon going through prophecy after prophecy. For sake of time, I'm going to show you four examples from Psalm 22. We could go over many more if you'd like. But the point is this. There's no way, there's no way that David knew what people would do at the, at the time of Christ's death if David was simply writing of himself. Say, how do you know that the Bible was not written by David, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost? How do we know? Because of fulfilled prophecy. Because man could not have orchestrated this. Because only the God who knows the end from the beginning could have told us a thousand years earlier what would happen at the crucifixion of Christ. And that they would shake the head. That they would be wagging their heads. 
that they would say, he trusted on the Lord, let him deliver him. And then they said, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now, go back to Psalm 22. Let me give you another example. Verse 9. Psalm 22, verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God in my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round about. They gaped me upon me with their mouths as a ravening and, and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And, by, and that's, a, that's a prophecy too, where they uh, pierced the side and water came out. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is... Uh, like wax. And I want you to notice what he's describing here. He's describing a man who's dying with people around him mocking him. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. He says, in the way that this man is dying, he's dying in a way where his bones would be out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. The fact that they would, that he would be dehydrated, that he would be in need of, of, uh, water. Did not Jesus say from the cross, I thirst? And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Don't miss this. They pierce my hands and my feet. A thousand years before Christ, David wrote that there would be a man who would not only have people mocking at him while he died, shaking their heads at him while he died, uh, 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 reviling him by saying he trusted in God, let him deliver him, but his hands and his feet would be pierced. Go to John chapter 20. If you're there in Matthew, you got Mark, Luke, John. And please understand this, and you really have to get this. Psalm 22 was written by David, who was a man who had never seen a crucifixion. Death by crucifixion was not invented till hundreds of years later. Death by crucifixion was invented by the Greeks. It was perfected by the Romans. David had never seen a crucifixion. David is not describing a crucifixion. In fact, I don't think David even knows what he's describing. But yet he describes in detail a crucifixion invented by the Greeks, perfected by the Romans, of a, na- of a man named Jesus Christ, a thousand years before the events took place. John 20, look at verse 24. You say, was Jesus pierced in his hands and his feet? Well, we know he was, but let's just look at some scripture about it. John 20, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. These are the eyewitnesses, right? But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Why is Thomas asking this? Because he witnessed the fact that they put nails through his hands and through his feet. Verse 26, And after eight days, again, his disciples were with him, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hands, and thrust into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. By the way, proving the fact that Jesus was not a mere man, he was God. In the flesh. But we see here 
We see here that David, a thousand years before Christ, prophesied that Jesus would have his hands and his feet pierced, and it happened exactly, specifically, how he predicted or prophesied. Go back to Psalm 22. Let me give you another one. And like I said, we spent all day. We spent all day looking at this. I'm just giving you some, some examples. I, you know, honestly, I, I should have gone to Isaiah 53. I mean, Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament chapter on the crucifixion of Christ. But I, just, I, I didn't want to go to Isaiah 53 because I feel like everybody knows about Isaiah 53. That's the common one. I wanted to show you one that was a little different, but still as impactful when you understand it and when you look at it. Psalm 22, look at verse 17. I may tell all my bones, meaning that his bones were exposed. We know that he was whipped and his bones were exposed. They look and stare upon me, verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. And again, another specific prophecy that was not in the control of Christ. Christ was dying. He had no control over what they would do with his garments. But yet David prophesied a thousand years before Christ, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Go back to John This time to chapter 19. You were just in John 20, just one uh, chapter before John chapter 19. Look at verse 23. John chapter 19 and verse 23. John 19 and verse 23 says this, And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part. So he took his clothes and divided it into fours, and and they were going to divide it that way. And also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. So this was not something they wanted to cut up because they would destroy it. It had no seams. It was woven together. A nice coat that he had. So they decided, well, instead of cutting it up, let's cast lots for it. Verse 24. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Why would they do that? That the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, and we have it quoted from Psalm 22, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. And again, here's what you, you say, Pastor Jimenez, I'm not sure if I believe, I'm not sure if I think the Bible is really God's word, I'm not really sure what to think, and, and here's, here's all I'm telling you. Here's all I'm saying. You must have faith to come to, to God, but without faith it is impossible to please him. Do me a favor. Go to, go to Job. If you're, you're there in Psalm 22, just one book before Psalm Job. The Bible says, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I, I'm not going to try to convince you to come to God or to come to Christ without faith, because that is impossible. You must come to him with faith. Here's all I'm doing, is I'm trying to give you some logical reasons to consider that it is a reasonable faith to come to God, to come to Christ to believe in the Bible. You say, well, what evidence would there be that the Bible is not written by man? And one powerful evidence is not only that the Bible is not written by man, but that the Bible could not have been written by men. It could not have been orchestrated by men. Men could not have orchestrated what David prophesied and the Roman Empire fulfilled. The crucifixion of Christ. And you say, well, I don't know, that kind of sounds a little religious. Fulfilled prophecy? That's the best argument you've got? Well, I've got another argument for you. The first one is this. You say, why, why do we, how do we believe the Bible's not written by man? Well, we believe the Bible's not written by man because the Bible fulfills specific prophecy. Please understand this. That could not have been orchestrated by man. But here's another reason. And again, 
I could spend all day on this one topic. In fact, one day I will. One day I'm going to preach a whole sermon on this one topic. I don't have time to do that this morning because you have a short attention span. <laughs> so I'm going to give you three examples. Here's, here's, here's the next argument. We know the Bible is not written by man because the Bible foretold scientific facts before they had been discovered by man. Now, a year ago, I preached a sermon, I think it was called How We Know the Bible Wasn't Written by Man, and I gave some of these examples. I gave these examples. The examples I'm going to give you today are are new examples. Two of them are brand new examples I did not use in that sermon, and one of them is a a review. But I'm going to give you three examples of, of scientific facts that the Bible told us about before man had discovered them. Now, again, we could spend all day looking at this. And, and let me just run over a list of things that I'm not going to show you this morning that we could look at. We could look at the fact that the Bible taught against bloodletting, a common practice for years in the medical world, a medical practice that actually killed George Washington, and the Bible spoke against it. We could talk about the fact that the Bible taught to wash your hands in running water. You say, well, didn't everybody know that? No, for a long time, doctors were washing their hands in standing stagnant water And it was just a few hundred years ago that they figured out, oh, wow, we are actually spreading disease by all of us washing our hands in standing water. But yet the Bible taught all the way in the book of Leviticus that you should wash your hands in running water. We can talk about the fact that the Bible taught that there is fire and lava in the core or the center of the earth. We can talk about the fact that the Bible taught that the earth was round and not flat from the very beginning. We could talk about the fact that the Bible taught that the earth floats in space. We could talk about those things, but we're not going to talk about those things. We don't have time to talk about those things, all right? I'm going to give you three examples of some uh, very specific scientific facts that the Bible foretold before man had discovered them, all right? Here, are you there in Job? I want, I'd like you to be in Job 38. Here's what's interesting about the book of Job. The book of Job, the first two chapters are a narrative. There's a story of the life of Job and the events of Job's life. Then you have the rest of the book is basically Job and his three friends that aren't very good friends having a conversation going back and forth about Job. The book ends, then you've got a fourth guy who talks, Elihu. Then the book ends with God showing up, and then God is actually speaking to Job. In Job 38, we have God speaking to Job. So it's not only God's word, it's actually God speaking the words in Job 38. And I want you to notice what Job 38 and verse 19 says. Job 38 and verse 19, and look, Job was written thousands of years ago. I don't know, we don't know exactly when Job was written. Some people believe it might have been the first book that was written um, of the canon of the Old Testament. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I don't necessarily think so, but I, I do think that it was probably, uh, that Job, the life of Job was probably around the, 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 the after Abraham and, and, and maybe even Moses, but, but before the, the, the kings, maybe during the time of Judges. And it's hard to tell, but we know this. It's thousands of years old. It's ancient literature. Job 38 and verse 19 says this. Where is the way? This is God speaking to Job. Because God's trying to make a point to Job. He's, he's telling him all these things about how feeble and dumb Job is and how great and awesome God is. And here's one question he asks Job to try to Tell him, you're a man, I'm God, don't question me. Where is the way where light dwelleth? Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? Now here's the thing, when God asked Job, where is the way where light dwelleth? Job would have answered, what? 
the way that light dwells, Job would have had no idea what God was talking about because it wasn't until the 17th century that man discovered that light travels. Let me read to you an article called A Brief History of the Speed of Light, written by Jennifer Olette. This is an article that was written for Nova. It says this, The notion that light has a particular speed and that and that that speed is measurable, is relatively new. Prior to the 17th century, most natural philosophers assumed light traveled instantaneously. And here's what that means. It means that light didn't travel at all. It means that when light showed up, it showed up instantaneously everywhere. So when you turned on the light, it wasn't that light traveled from that source, but that as soon as that light came on, the candle or whatever that light encompassed that area instantaneously. So it's not traveling, it just appears when it turns on. That's what everyone believed about light prior to the 17th century. But Galileo, who lived from February 15, 1564 to January 8, 1642, was one of the first to test this notion, which he did with the help of an assistant and two shutter uh, two shuttered lanterns. The, I'm not going to read this whole thing to you. Let me, let me skip some of it. But it goes on to say this. Many other scientists improve, improved upon Galileo's work by devising ingenious new methods for measuring the speed of light. And it goes on to talk about all the different examples and things. But here's the point that I want you to understand. Secular history. Because when I give you the, pro, the, the, the predictions of the prophecies, you say, well, how, how do we know Maybe that's not, that sounds a little too religious. Okay, well, let's talk about science, because science is very religious, but people try to act like it's not. But let's talk about science. The secular world will tell you that it wasn't until the 17th century that men even began to think of the fact that light has a way that light travels, that light dwells in a location, and it moves, and we can actually measure the speed of light. Yet Job 38 and verse 19, an ancient scripture says, where is the way where light dwelleth? Now look, here's what I know. Job didn't know that. You didn't even know that, maybe. <laughs> but God knew it. You say, why? Because the Bible is not written by men. It could not have been written. Those words could not have been written by Job. They could only have been written by an all-knowing, omniscient God. Let me give you another example. You're there in Job 38, look at verse 16. Here's another example. We're talking about, we talked about the Bible was not written by man because it fulfills specific prophecies. That could not have been orchestrated by man. But now we're talking about, we shift gears a little bit, the fact that we know that the Bible was not written by man because the Bible foretold scientific facts before they had been discovered by man. One was, the scientific fact that light travels, the way where light dwelleth. But let me give you a second one. The Bible foretold that there are fountains on the ocean of the floor. Job 38 and verse 16. Notice, notice same chapter. You're there in, in Job 38. Look at verse 16. This is, again, God speaking. Because he, he's telling Job. Remember, he's trying to tell Job. You don't, you're nothing. Don't question me. Believe in me. Have faith in me. This is what God tells Job Job 38, 16, has thou, he's talking to Job, has thou entered into the springs of the sea 
Or hast thou walked in the search of the depth? And here's what he's telling Job. He's telling Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Because I have. Because I have. And, and Job would respond to God, there are springs in the sea? Because man was not aware of that. In fact, according to the pubs.usgs.gov website, a government website, because you don't trust the Bible, but you trust the government. Yeah, that makes sense. In 1977, scientists discovered hot springs at a depth of 2.5 kilometers on the Galapagos Rift spreading uh, uh, off the coast of Ecuador. In 1977, I mean, we're talking about decades ago, 40 decades ago, man became aware of the fact scientists discovered the fact that there are springs, hot springs, in the ocean, yet Job 38.16 says, Has thou entered into the springs of the sea? How did Job know that? Job didn't know that. God knew that. This book was not written by men. It was written by God. Let me give you another example. Go to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, you got Job there. And look, I, I, got, I have like 10 examples. I, I'm, I'm only going to give you three. One day, I don't know if I'll do it here, maybe when I'm preaching somewhere, I'll, I'll preach a, a whole sermon on science in the Bible, and I'll go through all of these scientific things that the Bible predicted before they were discovered by man. But I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to give you some logical reasons to understand why it is that we believe that the Bible is not written by men. It was not written by men because men could not have predicted and fulfilled and orchestrated the prophecies predicted in the Bible. And it was not written by men because the Bible foretold scientific facts that had not been discovered by man. Psalm 8, verse 8. Let me, this is the last one we'll look at. Psalm 8, verse 8. The Bible says this. The fowls of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever, notice these words, Passeth through the paths of the sea. Psalm 8 and verse 8 talks about things that are passing or that passeth through the paths of the sea. Let me read to you an article about a man. The article is called A Brief Sketch of the Work of Matthew Fontaine Maury. And here's what it says. At one time, when Commodore Maury was very sick, he asked one of his daughters to get the Bible and to read to him. And look, this is, this is historical fact. You can fact check me on this. She chose Psalm 8, the 8th verse of which speaks of whatsoever walketh through the paths of the sea. He repeated the paths of the sea, the paths of the sea. If God says the paths of the sea, they are there. And if I ever get out of this bed, I will find them. Maury studied navigation, meteorology, winds, and currents. He poured over thousands of ship logs and charts. In 1847, wind and current, uh, uh, the wind and current chart of the North Atlantic greatly reduced the length of ocean voyages by showing how to take advantage of ocean currents and winds. He shortened sa uh, sailing time to California by 30 days to Australia by 20, and to Brazil by 10. His system of recording oceanographic currents and winds data 
was used worldwide to develop charts for major trade routes. Here's what Maury said. He said, I have been blamed by men of science, both in this country and in England, for quoting the Bible in confirmation of the doctrines of physical geography. The Bible, they say, was not written for scientific purposes and is therefore of no authority in matters of science. I beg pardon. The Bible is authority for everything it touches. And what's interesting is that this man, Commodore Morey, Matthew Fontaine Morey, goes down in history, and you can Google his name, as the man that found these paths in the sea, but yet he found them because he read about them in the book of Psalms. And he knew that if God spoke of them, they must be true. And he found them, they were there, and they were in the Bible hundreds of years, thousands of years, before man ever discovered them. Go to Ecclesiastes. Let me give you a couple more verses and we'll we'll finish up. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You're there in Psalms. Go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. He not only discovered that there were circuits in the ocean, but he also discovered that there were circuits in the wind, and these worked together to create the paths of the sea. What's interesting is that Ecclesiastes also predicted the wind circuits. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 6. Remember, David wrote Psalms a thousand years before Christ. Solomon, the son of David, wrote Ecclesiastes close to a thousand years before Christ. Ecclesiastes 1.6 says this, The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. And before man had ever discovered that there were paths in the sea, before man had ever discovered that there were wind circuits, the Bible declared these from the beginning. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're talking about how we know the Bible is not written by man. And, and again, we could spend all day, and I didn't want to spend, you know, three hours going through from verse to verse. I wanted to just give you a few examples, but we, we, could get, we could give you more. Why do we believe that the Bible is not written by man? Now, now look, as a Christian, I believe that the Bible is not written by man because the Holy Spirit of God tells me so. Because when I hear the words of God, they burn within me. But for those of you that struggle with faith or have not yet believed or are wondering if it's even true, God put prophecies hundreds and thousands of years before they ever came to pass and then specifically fulfilled them to give you assurance that the Bible was not written by man and could not have been written by man. We know that because of specific prophecies that could not have been orchestrated by man. And then he also put in the Bible scientific facts, hundreds and thousands of years before man discovered them, just to show us that he is the God of creation, that he created the heavens and the earth, that he is omnipotent and omniscient, and just to show us that there are several scientific facts in Scripture that were there before man had ever discovered them. But let me just say this, and let me just give you one, one more thought, and I'm not, I want you to go to 1 Thessalonians 2, and I just want to give you this thought. For those of you who say, the Bible was written by man. You know, we've all heard that. I can't believe the Bible. The Bible was written by man. I can't believe the Bible. The Bible was written by man. The Bible was written by man. Here's the problem with that. The Bible 
when it comes to the instruments who put pen on paper, who authored it, was not written by man. In fact, if you want to remove God from the equation, you cannot remove the fact that you must admit the fact that at the very least, it was not written by man, it was written by men. See, our Bible is not a sacred book that was written by one man in a cave somewhere that was written by one man in the wilderness somewhere, that wrote down the Bible and then gave it to us and said, this is sacred, this is divine, you must believe it or go to hell. That is not how we got the Bible. See, it is even by secular logical reasoning, it is a wrong statement to say that the Bible was written by man because the Bible was not written by man, it was written by men. In fact, 40 of them. 40 men using three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three different continents over the period of 1,500 years, wrote documents that we are able to assemble together and spend years and years studying and cross-referencing And looking, I mean, have you been with us through the book of Ezekiel? Looking how this matches this in Revelation, and this matches this in Daniel, and this matches this. I mean, this is what we do every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. We look at a passage, and then we look at cross-references from different documents that were not written by the same man, but that were written by different men from all sorts of different cultures and life backgrounds. I mean, we're talking about men who were fishermen, men who were generals, men who were kings, men who were priests. We're talking about 40 different men, 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages who gave us one solid book. Why? Because the Bible is not written by man. It was written by God. And men were simply the tool to pen it down. So I'd leave you with this, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also, thank we God, without ceasing. Because that when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You say, why does it matter? Here's why. Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The only way to reap the benefits of a book written by God is to believe. So I hope you will. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we do not have a religion of cunningly devised fables. That we do not have a religion of fairy tales. That we have a faith, a belief system, a belief structure that will stand up to reasoning that we can logic with, that we can prove. Father, we thank you that you invite us to reason together with you, that you do not make us have faith simply in faith, but that you ask us to have faith in Christ, whose resurrection had infallible proofs, whose prediction was made in a book written by God. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross. Thank you for revealing your truth to us. 
In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.